We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala, and we seek blessings upon the Prophet, peace be upon him. So, <clears throat> steadily winding down the entire semester. Ulfat, you had a question. Yeah, I wanted to ask a question before we move to the new A, if that's okay. Fire away. Um, a, a couple of classes ago, we were talking about how um, God only gives us what we can um, handle. Yes. Um, and I've been reflecting on that. And I was wondering, um, for people who have like breakdowns when they face hardship, how does that kind of... Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. So what we can handle, number one, in terms of a relationship with Allah, that he's not giving us anything that would compel us to turn away from Allah, although we might choose to do so. But it doesn't mean we can't handle it physiologically, right? Like he might give me a sickness that's going to lead to my death. And I think that as we get more knowledge of, of mental health, we're going to start separating more physiology from, from behavior, right? And so I would connect the breakdown so far, reflecting on the same thing, with I would, uh, I would connect uh, uh, breakdowns with this mixture of our understanding of reality and how reality operates with physiology. That's my thesis right now, but not a formal answer. What do you think? So what I'm hearing is it's in our relationship with Allah, not when it comes to emotional, mental well-being. Yes, right. So in terms of Allah Ta'ala giving me, so, I mean, if he gives me COVID and it's fatal, then that's obviously something my body could not handle, right? If, uh, if Allah Ta'ala gives me uh, a condition that my mind cannot handle, that might be closer to the universe you're speaking about, but everything my heart can handle, that's where I'm, I'm framing the relationship with Allah. What do you think? Is especially in the context of mental health, this is something I've also been wrestling with that Allah does not give you a burden you cannot bear. Or keep thinking about it and we can explore more in the future, inshallah. Good. Any other questions before we jump in? So the last part of the last ayah, I want to use as a springboard for the next ayah. So once again, let me know you can see the screen. Yes. Okay, excellent. So we had some conversation related to Allah being near. When my servant asks you about me, I am near. And the responding of the call we had, I think, which was a really wonderful discussion uh, yesterday about people and the seemingly answered prayers. And the last part, so... I respond to the call of the caller when he calls upon me. So, fa, they should seek to respond to me. And they should believe in me. You know, and hopefully that will lead them to become Rashid, right? That they will become guided. So, Allah is saying, I do this for you. This is what you should do now for me which is essentially listen to the things I'm telling you, believe in me, 
and then inshallah you'll be rightly guided first point i want to raise for your consideration is notice the order first it says you should answer my call then it says you should believe in me doesn't this seem counterintuitive that first you should believe in me and then answer my call and awesome's like no explain that was like a very vicious uh, yeah sorry um I think the other day we we talked about um, like people can call on God with, if, even if they don't believe in Him, and therefore, and and so the the sort of um, the like convent here convent that's not the right word. I don't even know what your word you're trying to say here. The 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 um, the pact here essentially. Oh, covenant covenant i was i was closer than i thought uh is uh the covenant here is that if if you call upon me i will answer no matter what the condition of your belief is uh-huh. condition of your heart or whatever yeah and so like you could be a you know militant atheist like in randian atheist and um if you're, you know, if something, if something happens and you say, oh God, that's essentially calling. Can be you. And so, and so uh, belief is not a condition for an answer to your call. Mm-hmm. Well, any other thoughts? I think it does, does feel a little counterintuitive. I think um, Austin made a good, like when you first asked that question, I was like, yeah, it's counterintuitive, but like, you know, I can understand that point. But I, I also think that they do come opposite because mm-hmm. like, how would one know what call they are trying to answer mm-hmm. if they are not recognizing that that is that higher being who is doing the calling? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, there's obviously a behind how, why it's come in this order, totally. but I can definitely see why it feels counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. So, yes, please. Um, the, yeah, the first thought was is that it's sort of somewhat counterintuitive, as in, like, if you, you know, take up the phone and call the wrong person and you ask them for something, you're, you're just talking to the wrong, like, you, you just have a wrong connection. Um, and so it kind of does matter as to what you're calling. At the same time, I, um, God answers everyone's prayer, so to say, in the fact that if you follow the order that he has set out, then that is a form of prayer because we're not creating anything. Let's say when I am growing a plant, I'm not creating anything. I'm just following the order of the way that he has set up the universe. Okay. And in doing so, in just my action of just following the way things are, that is a petition. Like I cannot guarantee the plant to grow. Okay. I cannot plant is not the cause of the growth. The mm. seed isn't, the sun isn't, nothing is. So just sticking to the way things work is a form of petitioning. Mm-hmm. Um, where someone may not believe in it, but they're still part of the order. They can't escape it. That's an interesting point. So even conformity to the operation of nature is is a type of petitioning. Interesting. Dania. I'm not really understanding the difference 
between answering Allah's call and believing. Okay. Like I'm, I'm not really sure. Like the, the nuance there, I'm not, I'm not understanding. So one possibility can be, and I always forget what ayah this is. And yeah, okay. So ayah fourteen and fifteen of Surah Al-Hujrat is this is this is a pair of ayahs that is often quoted to get a sense of what is iman. So here, so the Arabs, the Bedouin Arabs say, we have Iman. And the prophet is being told to say, no, you do not believe, you do not have Iman, but you should say, we have submitted, Aslamna. Because Iman has not yet entered into your heart. So. But if you obey Allah and his messenger, then you're not going to be deprived of any of your works at all. Okay. In Allah Ghafur Rahim. Okay. So you have Islam and you have Iman. When those two terms are paired together, as they are in this surah or this ayah, then they become levels of faith. So in that context, Islam is your actions are in obedience to Allah. Okay. And Iman becomes a condition of the heart. But if you only have one on its own, then they might be potentially interchangeable. This is where you have all kinds of debate, right? literally all kinds of theological schools. So when you have Islam on its own, then it's probably referring to the religion of Islam. Islam very often. If you have Iman on its own, very often it might just be interchangeable with being a Muslim or not. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu. O you who profess to believe. O you who believe is basically saying, hey Muslims. See what I'm saying? But when you have the two together, the general sentiment seems to be consistently in terms of interpreters is that they're talking now about levels of faith. Third level of faith is Ihsan. Good. And so then, so if you've done actions, that's where you, when you contrast Islam with Iman, Islam is a realm of the body, it's a realm of actions. And even if you have no apparent faith in your heart, Allah is not going to, you know, withdraw or not going to deprive you of your, whatever it is you've done for it. So, uh, then when we get to Ayah 15, what is, what is Iman? Who are the people of Iman? Those who believe in Allah and the Messenger, so they actually believe in Allah and the Messenger, then they have no doubt. And no doubt here is like they don't sway, they don't swerve away from that. And jihad, they strive with their wealth and their souls, okay, in the way of Allah. And these are the people of truth. So this, these two ayahs are often quoted to explain the contrast between Islam and Iman. So if we go back to this ayah, our current ayah, uh, it could be, let them answer my call, which could be actually we're speaking of Islam, and let them, let faith enter into their hearts. That's another possibility. But Asim's point for his point, I think all of them are compelling.
Somebody's still in the waiting room. Oh, the other Sarah. I don't understand why the waiting room is not. Oh, that's why. Okay. Okay. Makes sense, Daniel. Yeah, it does. Thank you for that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you go to, I mean, this is obscure for our purposes, but if you go to um, Nawawi's commentary on Sahih Muslim, like there's this giant section all the way at the beginning of trying to contrast Islam with Iman. You know, what is the relationship between the two? And then listing out all these different theories, you know, theological schools over the years. You know, literally, right? That's like, <laughs> Nawawi's commentary is the standard, the standard commentary often used on Sahih Muslim, and his first section is exploring that exact issue. Okay, so I actually want to use this to get us to look at the next ayah, which is the last ayah of Surah 3, Surah Ali Imran, which is the ayah that those of you who've been to any of my Jummah khutbahs is the one that I quote in every single khutbah Rabayan. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, O you who believe, O you who profess to believe, isbiru or usbiru. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, usbiru, usabiru, warabitu. Oh, you who profess to believe, persevere and be persevering. Okay. And here it says, be constant. Other translations will say, be ready. What the Allah here, fear. I don't think fear is very strong as a translation of taqwa. Take Allah as your shield, shield yourself with Allah so that you may be successful. So first, in its positioning in Surah 3, the contrast between Surah 2 and Surah 3, Surah Al-Baqarah with Ali Imran. Surah Al-Baqarah is laying out foundations of belief and practice, but a lot of it is focused on law and history. Ali Imran is building upon that, we could say, but it's focusing much more on Iman and the works compelled by Iman. Meaning, <clears throat> think back to the drawing that I always make. You have the heart, the mind, and the body. Sound vaguely familiar? Anyone kind of? Like you have the heart, the mind, and the body. Very often you start by getting your body to submit to Allah first. Leading to get your mind to have the priority focus on Allah. And then get your heart pure. It's usually the reverse order, again, of what we commonly think. Because if your body is out of control... Sleeping schedules out of control, eating practices out of control, you're not going to be able to have the concentration to, to work on anything else. So having said that, here then we have this formula. Okay, or I'm saying having said that, then as you are developing iman in your heart, it will compel you to act in service to Allah. So the person at the level of Islam, they fulfill what Allah is prescribing because they're supposed to. The person at the level of Iman is fulfilling what Allah is prescribing innately as though they can't not do it, as though they wake up automatically for Fajr. And, and so uh, that is Surah 3. And so Surah 3 is then ending. I mean, the whole ending of Surah 3 last night is really fascinating, but for, we'll focus on this. Persevere. And make that your disposition, one of perseverance. So the prophet, peace be upon him, speaks of all these kind of benefits of these different uh, personal uh, attributes. 
but the benefit of sabr, being a personality of sabr, is like a waterfall of benefits upon you. Asim. Um, at the end of the ayah, it says, like, so you can be successful. Yeah. Uh, what is, what's success in this? Okay. Uh, let's get to that in just a second, inshallah. Okay. Yeah. So what does it mean to have summer? What does it mean to persevere? How would you all answer that question? Sarah. I'm so sorry. You asked a question. I was going to ask a separate question so we ask can answer your question. question. Ask your okay. Question. Okay. So um, you, you brought up like the three ways to kind of get to that point of like submission to Allah, like through your body, your mind, and then your heart. What do you say or what are your thoughts on our like current state of affairs where a lot of people are very comfortable with saying, you know, I'm a very spiritual person or, um, you know, like truly just like the idea of I'm just a very spiritual person, sure. but maybe in the sense of not having their bodies in control. This is even for people that aren't necessarily Muslim. Um, do you feel that if someone is really strong in, you know, one of those aspects of the three, like how can you assist a person to be guided? That's a weak end to my question, but I just kind of want to hear your take on that. So, so the first part of the question, like, well, the first part of the question, like when people say I'm spiritual, not religious, no one ever says I'm material, not religious, right? Or I'm religious, not spiritual. Like no one ever, ever does the reverse. But when someone is saying those things, what do they often mean? They're often saying, okay, I find this, this superstructure called religion to be restricting, archaic, uh, potentially oppressive, but the core is still something that I buy into, right? That's often what they're saying. The question for all of us is the question of growth. Is the person saying the same thing a year later, two years later, five years later? If they are, then either they don't know to grow or they're not interested in growing. Then it becomes an excuse, right? Uh, however, if a person learns uh, to grow, then they're probably hopefully seeking to develop depth of that, to expand upon that, whatever the case may be. Uh, part of the reason I find the study of religion super thrilling and I've studied a bunch of things, you know, in, in my old age, but um, is because uh, it's literally a window. It's like the biggest window into the human experience. It's the biggest window into human consciousness. And so the big ancient religions have a thousand or multiple thousand year head start over everything else. Meaning most every issue that you and I will wrestle with today, you can probably find somebody attempting some sort of an answer to it doesn't mean that they're going to find an answer because there are still fundamental differences in our age versus the previous eras but the point being that if someone is going down the path of spirituality uh, and they're going through a search it will probably lead them to one of the ancient religions awesome um i think also often uh spirituality is used as an excuse to not do the hard work of like ascribing to a religion 
I mean, yeah, if it, that would be a, a test to see in the long term, you know, you know, at least a self-test to discover if it's an excuse or if it's an actual position. So it may be that someone has started in a certain tradition and it didn't work, they didn't buy into it, or they might've had traumatic experiences, uh, but they still want to have a connection with something bigger, but they don't know where to go from there. That's what I'm saying, like they don't know to grow. But yeah, I do think a bunch of people use it just as an excuse, but that can also apply to a person who is doing all the acts of religion and finds complacency, you know, they're not growing there. That was a pretty profound, like, unmute and mute, but okay. Hazel. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum wa My question's in the chat box, actually. Oh, snap. So does having sabr and establishing a personality of sabr mean that one attains ihsan? Oh, snap. Uh, I would say it is the pathway to ihsan, as opposed to ihsan itself. Does that make sense? Yes. So then does one ever attain Ihsan? Absolutely. Uh, another pathway to Ihsan is Taqwa. And, and same thing. So what is Taqwa essentially? Why do I not like the translation of Taqwa as fear? Think of Taqwa as being on guard. So like we're fasting, it's literally active Taqwa. You're always on guard about the fact that you're fasting. You know, I'm fantasizing about that one day where I'll be like drinking a glass of water. Like, oh man, I'm fasting. But I already drank. And I'll forget that I'm fasting. And then I drink, you know, like, you ever see that that one TikTok type video about the guy who calls in asking, you know, what happens? Like, what is it if like uh, I'm fasting and then I trip and like shawarma falls into my mouth and I accidentally swallow it and I eat a banana or something? You know, one of you, I think one of you might have asked me, probably sent it to me or something, but uh, yeah. So, so the point is, think of taqwa and sabr as vehicles, but think of ihsan as a condition. Let me know if that helps make sense of it. Wherever you are. Yeah, it does. Inshallah, yeah. And why is taqwa not a condition? Well, it is also a condition, but as a vehicle, so being a sabr, <coughs> perseverant is also a condition. But the point is, taqwa, you're increasing being on guard, yielding ihsan, inshallah. Yeah. Okay. So, ya ayyuhaladina amanusbir. Oh, yeah. So, my question is, what is sabr? Try to explain sabr without using the word patience, perseverance, fortitude. Now, explain sabr. And the more you can make it a live thing as opposed to here's the definition of seen butter. I mean, right, tell me something. Awesome. Um, the way I've always understood it is sort of seriously, you've always understood it this way. Well, probably not. Okay, okay, anyway, continue. And the word understand is also used loosely here, but uh uh it, it's it's the idea that you like unyieldingly believe that. Okay no matter what, Allah will have your back. Okay, nice. Right, and so, like, it doesn't matter what kind of trials and tribulations you're hit with, uh, Allah's got your back, and, okay. and that's that's kind of, that's that's what you rely on uh, to get you through the toughest times. Okay, so 
without try to explain what does it mean that Allah has your back? So. Um, that that there is that essentially that uh, the things that happen are the things that happen because they are supposed to happen that way. Mm-hmm. That you do, you obviously do everything you can. This is that trust in God, but tie your camel thing. Okay. Uh, camel, but trust in God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. You do everything you can, but uh, when something difficult happens, you still trust that it happened because it was meant to happen. Oh. And that, that that belief is uh, unyielding. And I, I, it's, it's very hard to get there. Oh, totally. Right. And, and like, the um like the example of someone passing away from covid if it's someone close to you it's really easy to sort of veer into anger or or uh to let go of that steadfast belief that things are happening because they're supposed to happen sure um and so so it's it's definitely like an aspirational thing not a not a thing I necessarily feel like I'm I'm at now. Okay, but inshallah. Okay. Inshallah, so yeah. I would guess when you're saying Allah has your back, you mean the conviction that Allah is never going to abandon you. Yes. Right. Essentially, okay. yes. I think that's a much better way of saying has of course, inshallah, inshallah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Dawood says you fall down, you get back up, you fall down, you get back up. Hey, Dawood, did you actually type this or did you, you had copy and paste over and over again? You fall down, you get back up, you fall down, you get back up. You fall down, you get back up. You fall down, you get back up. Fall down, you get back up. Okay. Yeah, I would say that is also sabr. Yeah. Control C, Control V, nice. Okay, Ahad. Um, another like way to interpret um, that you know that Allah has your back is that is that like whatever situation that you're in, you view it is that it's the best for you. Whatever state that you're in. Okay. What would be the difference is a question for Ahant as well as everyone else. If we change it from this is best for me to this is good for me. Is it the same thing or what's the difference? Well, good is indicating a variety of options. Okay. It's best is more like certain okay. in, in terms of you know, out of all the probabilities and the possibilities of situations that could happen, the fact that I'm going through the, this is, is is tailor made for me. Okay. I think like that's what like best indicates. Okay, works for me. Hazel, I think that I'm definitely of the type that will cry and be like, "This is best for me." <laughs> like these um, are these are happy tears, grateful tears, or angry tears. Uh ooh. Sometimes they're. Like, are you bound- forcing yourself to believe yeah. this is best for you? Exactly. Exactly. Oh, got it, got it. Okay. I'm forcing myself to believe that it's best for me. Yes. And so when I hear best and good, I personally don't find myself saying this is good for me. Maybe in hindsight. Okay. I'll be like, Subhanallah, that was a latif in his own subtle ways. <laughs> okay. Okay. But in the moment, it's um, I have to push myself to say this is best. This is best. This is best. Uh huh. Yeah, okay, makes sense. Anyone else? Thoughts? What is sabr? Let me give you a different way to look at sabr. 
All these, I think, however, are sound, strong meanings of sabr. One is that you don't slow down and you don't veer off course, no matter what hits you. What I like about making these points is that here's what happens with Olfat. Then processing has completed. <laughs> so I actually did that on purpose because I was wondering if she was just like talking to somebody. But anyway, so so uh, consider that also as a definition of, of sabr, that whatever it is that's hitting you, whatever different ways, <laughs> Hi, Toronto. So you, you are you are still moving forward at the fastest speed that you can, or at the very least, you're not losing your focus on your, your goal, your destination. Sometimes, however, you might need to slow down to cope with your situation, but you're still not changing course. Asim. Uh, I like that a lot because it it puts the the thing in my control. Yeah. Nice. I think I think the idea of uh, Allah has not abandoned me is more of a like a, a belief thing. Like I believe it, and probably not in small part because it helps me feel better uh-huh. uh, during times of tribulation. But the idea of sort of keeping the course um, makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Now, this should not negate what you said. The belief that Allah is uh, not abandoning me, or what Hazel is doing when she's saying, "This is best for me. This is best for me." That's azkar, literally, right? That's a dhikr, right? Because when we're doing dhikr, like repeating the names of Allah, a lot of times we just think that, all right, I say these names of Allah, and it's an automatic benefit to me, and that is a thing. But when you're saying these things, repeating with meaning. Ya Allah, Ya Allah, and you're actually calling out to Allah as opposed to just saying Ya Allah, Ya Allah, Allah, Ya Allah. That's beneficial, but calling out to Allah is stronger. And so what we're saying here is that if you keep repeating to yourself, Allah is not going to abandon me, Allah is not going to abandon me, then force yourself to believe that, it does work. And case in point, I'll give you a simple example. Excuse me, that um, I've been talking about my, my car issues. I don't remember what the last update was, uh, that uh, uh, yesterday the mechanic called and you know said that there's all these other problems, doubling the cost of repairs. They should have just gone to boss if it was in the class, but, but I was in a hurry. But, um, and I kept saying to myself, this is good. This is good. This is good. So then objectively, I can say, yeah, something's really fishy about this, but the, the pain of it was gone. And so repeating those things is actually beneficial. Uh, As a way, it's almost like fake it till you make it, but that's literally half of how of God, how, how of Allah, remembrances of Allah work. It's really just programming your mind. So, you know, one example that's so often misunderstood uh, the companion, some say it's Abu Dhar al-Ghafari, but he's not named in the specific narration, goes to the Prophet, peace be upon him, saying, okay, give me advice. And the Prophet says, what? Don't get angry. And then he says, okay, give me more advice. Don't get angry. Give me more advice. Don't get angry. And part of the lesson there is that, okay, he's being impatient, perhaps on the verge of getting angry. But part of it 
is keep repeating la dagdab. So if you're someone who has a struggle with anger, keep repeating it. Either don't get angry, don't get angry, don't get angry, don't get angry, or la dagdab, la dagdab, la dagdab. Olfat. Um, I remember last year in one of the classes we were talking about how, and we were actually talking about patience and how people skip a step of acknowledging their emotions. So the fake it to make it kind of sounds like we're skipping that step. Mm. Oh, wonderful point. I would say that think of those as part of it, but you're still recognizing that, I mean, I'm still recognizing like, okay, the whole car situation is not pleasant. I'm still owning that I don't like this this whole headache that I have to go through. But I also know how much happier I am when I'm happy. But this is after years of bringing myself through this whole process. You know, had we had this this uh, uh, had I had even a small car issue, say, fifteen years ago, I'd have been like, oh man, this is the worst. This is the end of the world. I hate this. You know, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. Right. Uh, but what I'm also describing in terms of my own case is, after, is going through years of personal brain reform, so to speak. Does that make sense? So I'm wondering, is it possible to say something along the lines of, I'm really struggling with this right now, but it's good for me? Like also acknowledging that I would this say, is hard. I would say first, such a person should just say, I'm really struggling with this. And then they can start saying, I'm really struggling with this is good for me. And then they can start saying this is good for me. See what I'm saying? If a person is at that level, okay, I mean, I'm not saying this there's a better or worse. If that's where a person is, then that's what a person has to recognize they are. Make sense? Because you didn't go. Sarah. Um. So kind of along the lines of what Olfat was talking about, um, I'm having a little trouble um, following along defining sabur as um, not slowing down because inherently in some instances that cause you to feel frustrated, upset, yeah. lots of emotional turmoil. Mm. I feel like in my, in my case, I would imagine sabur would be exactly that of like, Mm-hmm. I am slowing down to process this before I like, you know, blow a gasket or whatever it may be to go through that processing of like, this is not great. I don't love this, but getting to that stage of this is good for me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I, I feel like in my way of understanding Sabur, it is inherently a slow, like a slowing down. To so, process. yeah, I, I think I might have said it too quickly when I was saying it, that you're not slowing down and you're not losing focus. Uh, but there may be times where you do actually need to slow down and recollect, but you're still not losing focus, right? Uh, I'll give you a different definition of sabr. A different definition of sabr is that you don't lose control of your emotions, no matter what hits you. That you are still getting emotional, but you're not losing control. That is sabr. And I'll give you another definition of sabr, that you're persisting, but you are not violating any rules. That would be the case, for example, if someone has wronged you, you don't then wrong them. And in, in, in like, you know, you don't commit a crime against them. Make sense? 
Uh, Sim. Um, I think also we are we're looking at Subud very narrowly. Okay. Uh, with, make it wide. Uh huh. So make it wide. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just a sort of particular condition when something bad happens, right? So I think, for example, That's a wonderful point. Yeah, getting caught up in celebrating small victories and allowing that to veer you off your path is also a danger. Uh, or, or anything like that. I think it's, it's like, I think, Sarah, when you brought up the point about it being slowing down so you can process the bad thing that just happened to you, I think that's very valid. But also I think that, um, yeah, I think the idea of not, uh, of, of not veering from the path for any reason, good or bad, uh, is probably closer to to how I'd like to practice it. Yeah, Michelle, Michelle. Yeah, I think that's also a very good point. Sabar when times are good is also a thing. So, any other thoughts, reflections on sabar? Um, so I, I'm kind of understanding sabar, you know, with the um, different interpretations that everybody shared kind of like a coping mechanism. Um, but again, kind of, again, with when things are going wrong, but it's hard for me to grasp the idea of being patient or steadfast. When, I mean, I suppose when you're, when you phrase it the way you said, you know, not losing focus, um, you could use that when things are going right, but otherwise in terms of, I don't know how I would apply that. Okay, so was it uh, yesterday where I was talking about all these different times where I've thought about leaving this this work and going into whatever? Yeah, yeah. So I took the train home last night. I took the train home last night and this uh, I take an Uber to get to the home and this guy pulls up in this Lex or this Tesla, okay, brand new Tesla. So I'm getting into a conversation with him, like, do you own this? And he's like, no, I get this through through Uber. And he's telling me how the whole deal is set up. And he says, people don't believe how much money I make. And he said, I'm the head of the household. I'm, or I'm the primary provider. I put both my kids through college. And people don't believe me. I have to show them. So I, was, so, I mean, I was thinking, like, he wants to tell me how much money he makes. Anybody want to guess? He's, uh, he works 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. every night. How much money? Do, I, don't, I don't know if he works seven days a week, but I'm going to guess he does. Throw out a number. How much do you think he makes? $100 a day. So that would be $36,000? Yes. No. $171,000 a year. I was going to say about one hundred fifty. Yeah. yeah. So I was thinking, hmm. So as soon as I got home, I pulled up the Uber website to, and thought, hmm. Summertime is about to approach, right? I even uploaded my driver's license. But in any case, but um, the point being, that would be a way for me to lose focus. All these dollar signs flashing by me. And, and then me thinking, I could do so much good with all of these dollars, right? And so that, does that make sense, Dania, as a way of losing, losing focus? Yeah, like reflection in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Still, 171. 
I don't know if I believe that, honestly, but it's Ramadan, so I'm going to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. That's only $26 an hour. He's working a lot. Yeah, I mean, he's doing the night shift and he's working a lot. He he has literally done over 5,000, uh, what do we call them, trips, 5,000 clients. Nice. Yeah, I mean, that's, I believe it. Okay. So, Ubering seems like very hard work. Yeah, but it's a Tesla. You ever drive a Tesla? You don't have to hit the brake. <laughs> anyway, I'm kidding. Yeah, but you do have to give Elon Musk money. Yeah, that's true. Man, you're basically funding the oppression of little kids who are pulling out uh, lithium and all that stuff. But okay. So, but the point is that that's a, a, a the or here I'll even put it this way: uh, the Quran seems to get, uh, draw attention to two different. I don't know if we'd call them personality types, spiritual types. One, which is the common one we think of, is the person who, when they're going through struggle, they turn to God. And then when they're going through ease, they forget God. That's what we commonly think of. But that might be 50% of the population. The others are those who, when things are good, they feel honored by God, and then it's easier for them to serve God. But when things are bad, they feel abandoned by God. And then it's hard. And so sabr for these two people would operate differently. Zeba. I find my definitions of sabr and taqwa like sort of blending now. Okay. So how would you, where would you draw the line between the two? Okay. So if we connect, uh, if we can, okay, okay. First, like the ultimate metaphor for taqwa is found in this conversation between two companions. Some, according to some narrations, Omar is asking another companion, okay, what does Taqwa explain it? And Omar probably already knew, but wanted to hear what this companion had to say. And then there's a couple narrations of what the companion says, but they're more or less the same. One narration, he says, you have to walk through this forest of thorns. Imagine you have to do that. All you have to protect yourself is this thin shroud. And what do you do? You bring the shroud really close to yourself so that the thorns can't prick you. So this, bringing the shroud close to yourself is taqwa. The other answer in these in this uh, recorded of this conversation, which doesn't contradict it, is that you're carefully stepping in the safe spots until you get to the other side. That is taqwa. So I'm speaking of taqwa as being on guard. So. And then sabr, I would say, where's the difference here? Uh, sabar is sort of like the fuel to keep moving forward. Taqwa is keeping your doors locked. Let me know if that helps at all. But yeah, they do start beginning to, a lot of these start beginning to merge into each other. I think like I can, I can kind of see that there is like the idea of Taqwa being a protection versus sabar. Like I don't necessarily think of sabar as like a protection, but as a, a way of thinking of going mm-hmm. through life. Yeah. Uh, but it, they sort of seem very like f- fluid, like one sort of becomes another in that yeah. if you have, if you're a person of sabr, you're sort of, you, you sort of have to have taqwa to be able to like keep going through things. Yeah, I think that works. Mm-hmm. That's a very uh, insightful observation. Yeah. Awesome. To your point, did Omar have a legendary temper? The fascinating thing is that it's hard to find a single example of Omar being angry over getting insulted but we find him to be super firm 
on matters of deen, right? Until he became Khalifa. And then when he became Khalifa, he seemed to be super soft. Uh, even when Abu Bakr was the Khalifa, uh, you have immediately after the Prophet dies, we, see, we have all these tribe leaders saying, we're out. They had just become Muslim within the last six months. The Prophet now has died. And they're saying, we're out. We're not going to be paying you zakat. Okay. And Abu Bakr is ready to go to war. And, and Omar is saying, okay, we got to be soft on them. And Abu Bakr says, I never would have imagined I'd hear Omar speaking this way. Right? And so Abu Bakr was a tough one. He literally declared war against the entire peninsula. Uh, Omar, uh, as a Khalifa, seemed to become a very, very soft person. Except when someone had an infraction or someone of authority had an infraction. Then he basically beat the heck out of him physically. Yeah, Asa. so I guess my question about that is about like, you know, obviously the companions of the Prophet were are like examples in a way for us to, to follow right yeah and when we talk about things like losing control of your emotions and all that that's what that's what i think of quite often yeah i think that's how we frame him i don't know that he's ever losing control of his emotions though yeah I don't well think close to that. and then that brings up another question about the declaration of war right uh this is a hard, hard question to frame, but essentially, um, how would we see a declaration of war as not losing control of our emotions? Uh, I think a declaration of war would have to be literally the opposite of that. If you're losing control of your emotions, then it's not war. Then it's raping and pillaging. And, you know, but essentially what we're saying is that in, in general, uh, what we can pull from the Quran is this notion that Bloodshed should be avoided at all costs, even if it means doing other sins to avoid bloodshed. Right? So war is deception, or deception is okay in war. What is the meaning of this? That it is, if you can, by way of deceiving people, prevent bloodshed, you should do that. Right? Um, but that war is a, is a bitter reality that should be avoided if you can, but there are going to be scenarios where you cannot. And, and when I say war, I'm not necessarily thinking of like like war for, wars from Islamic history, right? So like, yeah. like the Trojan War was literally one man losing control of his emotions. Sure, yeah. Right? And, and that kind of stuff. Um, but that's an interesting point. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect segue into this next point. War, oh, wait, wait. How do we increase sabr? The, think of sabr as like a muscle. The more you do it, the more you get stronger. The dark side of sabr, however, is that why I keep speaking of that you keep moving forward, even if you're slowing down, but you keep moving forward, is it can become patience as opposed to perseverance. And then it can become resignation that you think is sabr. Whereas resignation is, is a way of giving up. A form of giving up right and that is <clears throat> like if you look at sabr in urdu it's more often patience close to resignation sabr in arabic is much more active and and so uh when you mix it with a theology of predestination 
and you get into words like kismet, this is my kismet, it's my destiny, then stubborn starts becoming resignation. And I think that is a corruption of it. And so think of stubborn as like a muscle, the more you do it, the stronger you become. At first, just like a muscle, you may exercise stubborn, you may exercise stubborn, you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. Okay. But the more you do it, then it does become stronger and chill. I don't have any muscles, so I don't understand that analogy. Explain it like I'm the atmosphere amorphous blob that I am, please. Did I already explain, or do you still need me to explain this, Mr. Amorphous Blob? I was kidding. Uh, please tell the class, mashallah, how much weight you've lost since the beginning of quarantine. Oh, like 45 pounds. Mashallah. You know, punching this, this cylinder in his basement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right there, that white, yeah, that white cylinder thing. Okay. Yeah, mashallah. Okay, so... Uh, what time do we have? 6.20? Okay, we'll stop right here. Uh, what I want us to discuss next time is warabitu. One translation, guard your frontiers. Okay. Be ready. Okay. Vi uh, stand firm. Okay. This is shifting from the individual, which is sabar, to your relationship with the collective. And this we'll talk about, inshallah next time all righty any last questions thoughts reflections my car is back mashallah it felt you know like nice getting getting my my car back oh that lexus was nice you know and it was clean and it was leathery and he had some country music thing going anyway subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashhadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. All right, may Allah tell our word you all. And we will continue, inshallah, tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.